0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: There is an alarming amount of people that will say, like, I don't care if you're white, black, brown, or purple. You can start a farm. It just means growing seeds. And that's not true.
0: This week on our show, we talk with local young growers at Outlier Farmstead who insist that farming is political. And we meet Danny Debuto of the band Zeta, He's got a passion for vegan food. He feeds the audience at shows, his band on the road, and during the pandemic, he's taught online cooking classes. All that and more coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats. Stay with us. First this. For years, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and conservationists have been urging farmers to plant other crops between harvests. They say this prevents erosion and enriches the soil. But as Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports, growing what's known as cover crops may not be worth it in drier areas.
2: Jimmy Emmons has all sorts of things growing in his fields in Leedy, Oklahoma.
1: Peas, beans, there's about... Three different kinds of of grazing
2: sorghum. There's millets in here. But he doesn't plan to harvest any of this. Instead, these are cover crops, plants grown in between cash crops to cover the ground and preserve it. Emmons digs into his field. He's looking at the dirt, even smelling it. it. Smells real earthy and sweet. More and more farmers like Emmons are practicing this technique. And it also got a shout out in President Joe Biden's first address to Congress as a way to help slow climate change.
3: Farmers planting cover crops so they can reduce the carbon dioxide in the air and get paid for doing it.
2: According to the Ag Census, farmers planted 50% more cover crops in 2017 than in 2012. Scientists like Augustine Abor at Kansas State University says that's good for the environment.
3: Growing a cover crop to cover the soil, to provide residue to protect the soil, that That is great. We've seen that when we take soil measurements, we do soil analysis, we see improvement in soil
2: properties. But scientists like Obor says it doesn't always make sense economically, especially in dry regions like Oklahoma and Kansas. David Nielsen is a retired U.S. Department of Agriculture researcher. He says it all comes down to a scientific concept called Liebig's Law of the Minimum.
3: It says the availability of the most limited quantity will be what affects growth or yield.
2: Nielsen says in the Great Plains, crops like wheat need every drop of water they can get. So you take water away and the yields are going to go down. He says cover crops don't always make sense, especially for farmers who don't irrigate their wheat. Jimmy Kinder relies on rain to water his winter wheat fields in Walters, Oklahoma.
1: I tried it for five years and three of the five years it was actually a negative
2: impact on the crop. Kinder says he is an anti-cover crop, but it just doesn't make sense for him.
1: So it seems to be difficult to get an economic or even a soil health return from planting a summer cover crop in a
2: short period of time. Kinder says that's why the practice hasn't gotten a foothold with a lot of wheat farmers. Vance Emke owns a seed company in Kansas, but he tells farmers not to use cover crops.
1: It's, it's just a gigantic fraud. I, and the thing that
2: is, is fascinating to me is that it is so widespread and it has just kept going on and on and on. Emke says he tries to dissuade farmers because the costs add up quickly. Some seeds can cost $35 an acre. Then
1: you've got transport, transporting of seed, you've got planting, you've got termination costs. I mean, you're just digging a deeper and deeper and deeper hole faster and faster and faster.
2: Most scientists agree that cover crops do best in places where there's more consistent rain. Even Jimmy Emmons, who travels the country encouraging other farmers to grow cover crops, says he's seen some crop loss in his fields in Oklahoma. He says that it's a small price to pay for the environment. But even in dry areas, there's one way this practice makes economic sense for farmers. Grazing.
1: If I can take $100, $150 of beef off of that, that's a pretty good return on my investment. Besides the benefits that it's doing for the soil. Keeping it covered, not blowing away, not washing away when we get a heavy rain.
2: Whether it's feeding cattle or payments for reducing carbon, farmers may need to make their crops, even cover crops, Pay Seth Bodine Harvest Public Media
0: Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org Over the past two years, our community has faced a great deal of controversy surrounding our local farmers' markets. A member of Identity Europa, a white nationalist group rebranded as the American Identity Movement, was selling produce at our largest farmers' market run by the city of Bloomington. This revelation led to protests, boycotts, community conversations and trainings on racism and white supremacy a temporary market shutdown, increased security, and a splintering in our local food producers' community. As a result, new markets have formed in town, including the People's Cooperative Market with racial justice at the core of its mission, and other markets, some of them attempting to avoid the controversy altogether. In July of 2020, a social media post caught my attention. It was from Nick Garza of Outlier Farmstead who described himself as one of the only Hispanic Latino farm owners in Bloomington. He wrote, Farming is political. Nick went on to say, quote, Farming as we know it is a product of black and indigenous knowledge and practice from ancient techniques to modern models from George Washington Carver and Booker T. Watley. Throughout this country's history, land has been stolen from these people or outright burned and destroyed. Nick notes that Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, or BIPOC, are quote, most likely not born with generational wealth or land. This is absolutely necessary to address, especially as a farmer and as a human being. There is so much work to be done in acknowledging this history and righting these wrongs, end quote. Seeing these words, I knew I wanted to talk to Nick Garza. So I made a plan to visit Outlier Farmstead out on Leonard Springs Road in Southwest Bloomington. How are you? I'm good. Nick Garza and Marie O'Neill greeted me with face masks
3: in the driveway.
1: My name's Nick, Nick Garza. I run Outlier Farmstead.
3: And my name's Marie O'Neill, and the same goes for me, I guess. (laughs) We began with a tour of their farm.
1: We kind of started off under the guise of like a market garden, row cropping, annuals, pretty much throughout. And then halfway through, we kind of considered that maybe we want to move towards a perennial system. And it's been tough to do that. They take a while to establish, and in this first year, we're just trying to get established pretty readily
0: can you talk a little bit about like what kind of crops are annuals just for people who maybe aren't as familiar with growing as you are?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Lettuce, squash, chard, beets, uh, onions are all really annuals. If they die back in the winter, then they're really only useful for that one season. A perennial plant relies on a, a, a dense root system that allows it to come back up in the springtime and perennially forever, if it's well taken care of. So, we have some native hazels back there and, and that was kind of what started the whole drive towards a more perennial system. We constructed swales and berms and planted out one of them to elders and two of them to cucumbers and cucumbers aren't working that well. But it's just that a trial of learning that we're grateful to be able to have and not really face huge consequences on it. This is really a hobby farm for us right now.
0: What are swales and berms?
1: Yeah, swales and berms are ditches with, with piles on the side, essentially to mitigate water flow and erosion. Uh, <laughs> we, we sourced compost from a local farmer who is USDA organic, and he couldn't use that compost because the certifier didn't let him. And so we, we got that compost secondhand from him and set up about 10 different beds and we had a huge rain event in March, like a week or two after we set the beds up, and everything just washed away. And it was the day after that that we decided that we need to find a way to mitigate that.
0: I I just love the word swales. It, it's a beautiful <laughs>
1: word, yeah. And and they work really well. When it rains, before we had that rain catchment system over there, everything would find its way down here, and it, it holds water for, for quite a long time. And from the past couple days rain event you might still find water in, in that far south swale just standing there and slowly being leached out as, as the other plants east of it beyond it need it. I think that's incredible
3: Great. Great. Yeah.
1: like I said I mean everything here is is experimental and I think that that's part of what what draws us to farming it's it's so niche and there's so many things to think about all the time it's like a navigating a maze or a labyrinth and it, it's just been really rewarding to find out what works and what doesn't a, a good example of that is intercropping and you can intercrop lettuce and onions you know at the same time you can put them in rows together and, and they should be able to grow together, but that's all based on timing. And if you, if you don't get the timing right, then maybe the lettuce will grow too quickly and shade out the, the onions and then the whole thing fails. We got, uh, we got that right a couple times and we also got that wrong a few times. A wrong example would be our kale and beets. The kale was too far along when we put it in with the beets. It grew up and just kind of shaded out like little trees, the beets, and kind of stunted their growth pretty bad. And that's just something that we have to try again next year, I guess. We drew from Charles Doding, who's uh, Popular organic farmer in the UK. He multi-sows certain crops, which means that when when you propagate them in a tray, in an individual cell tray, you, for example, beets. You would put about four to five seeds in there, and you get like a little cluster of of, of small seedlings, and you put that in the ground. And as they grow, the the swelling at the top of the tap root pushes them apart, and you can selectively harvest the biggest ones and then that gives the the remaining few a a chance to to grow in and fill that space. We're still sorting out what what works and what doesn't work with that. Like just yesterday we sowed rutabaga or swede and it it took a bit of reading to figure out if that's something that we should multi-sow or not and we ended up not doing that. But yeah, just another example of the intricacy of this kind of farming. Mm Everything here was just pasture, grass, and low-quality weeds in March-ish. And we were able to go out to, it was like Brownsburg, which is like 40 minutes rural southeast of us, to meet a man that was selling billboards from a friend that put up billboards. And we got maybe six of them for about 20 each. Mm -hmm. And it, it... worked out kind of perfectly because they're, they're used you know they're kind of weathered everything has already degraded by the time that they've been standing up in the Sun for so long so we use them to smother out weeds and, and kind of break clear ground over here we had a tarp sitting for about three maybe four weeks and it's, it's just pure rich soil and after that, we went through and cover cropped it and laid the straw down to kind of hold moisture. It
0: seems so good because they're large, so it's just a one time deal. You're not like piecing together a bunch of pieces and, yeah. and they're so heavy, they probably really last a long time.
1: Yeah, I think they're 15 mil and uh, they're they're 14 by 48, which makes our, our beds a strange length, but it, it's worked out perfectly. We've got a couple more out front still and we like to keep two to three tarps down at all times just to as new projects come up as we anticipate what's going to happen next year and all of that yeah. yeah
0: yeah that's awesome i love it especially when it's like an inexpensive and recycled thing you know
1: yeah and that's a huge part of farming while young 85 percent of everything we have is used And most of it's local, some of it we went out to Indy to get, but it's really just that that game of finding what you can, what is available to you, and what is affordable to you. This whole farm is, has been less than $3,000, quite a bit less than $3,000 to get started.
0: Nick and Marie are quick to point out, though, that the cost of land can get in the way for many farming startups. They did not purchase land at the outset, and they have a lease agreement that allows them to keep costs low. If you're just joining us, my guests today are Nick Garza and Marie O'Neill of Outlier Farmstead. After a short break, we'll continue our conversation and hear about starting a new farm as a global pandemic sets in. Stay with us. Young, you're listening to Earth Eats, and we're talking with Nick Garza and Marie O'Neill. They are young growers and owners of Outlier Farmstead in Bloomington, Indiana. Is this your first year?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh
0: like this this spring.
1: Yes. Year. Yeah, and we actually. COVID kinda got us. We had a, a pretty elaborate like marketing plan and how we were gonna go about it and Once everything started shutting down, we had to pivot and just figure out what to do. That hurt us quite a bit. It was interesting to see how emotions played into that. When we sowed seeds in March and April, we sowed, sowed a lot of seeds. We grew a lot of produce, and in late April, early May, we just weren't selling it. It was complicated to work out food donations to people because access is now strange how to proceed with that is a bit difficult and so i i took that kind of personally and it made me sad and so i i dialed back how much we were starting and now we're vending at the people's market and we're vending at a neighborhood market and opening our own market and now we're we would be selling more if we had more now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it, Yeah,
0: again, getting that balance right. <laughs> yeah.
1: We didn't really have any experience growing probably 75% of the crops that we're growing now. And it, it kind of shows everything is experimental. We're dealing with, I think, Five different pest issues simultaneously on just our squash and oh
0: yeah I I totally understand that yeah I, I no longer grow anything in the squash family because I can't handle the heartbreak
1: <laughs> it is heartbreak it's real heartbreak
3: one night you'll go to bed and everything will be fine and the next morning you'll wake up and like three of your plants are just like wilted yeah. to death
1: something I found interesting about that is our friend Stephen from Rising Moon who lives maybe 10 minutes south, does not have these issues with squash pests. He's fine. He has the little striped cucumber beetle Uh and that's it. Wow. And so his squash is looking perfect.
0: That's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah.
1: We came from Northwest Indiana and we had some experience growing food there. We worked on a farm for about a year and a very rich, glacial, sandy loam soil. And a lot of things worked in that that don't work here and vice versa. This ground was pretty tough. It had a lot of compaction issues. We had to till it once. After that, it was a mixture of cover cropping, buckwheat, radish to loosen up and aerate that soil and then going through and using a garden fork to manually aerate all of the beds before we planted in them. And that was not something that we had to do in northwest Indiana.
0: The peppers look gorgeous, though, I will say. Thank you. <laughs> they look really happy.
1: Yeah, they worked out pretty well.
0: So, you're either thinking of or definitely moving towards not having any of these annual crops or maybe just cutting down on them and building up the perennials?
1: Yeah, the latter, definitely. There's a place in my heart for annuals like people yeah. like eating onions and beets and chard, things and like that. And peppers <laughs> and tomatoes. But I know that it would be more environmentally sound to move towards a perennial system and to share that in our community. And so we've been doing pretty pretty constant research about which plants that are native to Indiana are have edible qualities to them and how can we incorporate that. This land was previously a, a deer farm, of all things, which I didn't know could exist or should exist. And it was actually that that historical pasturing of this land that, that led to our soil being eutrophicated, very unnaturally high in, in nutrients, which I, I don't think many people would think of as a real problem, but it definitely affected the the growth of our crops in ways that we didn't really expect and in terms of the weeds that we have the weed pressure that we have and growth habit for example our our peppers grew to be very leafy and not produce much fruit because the nitrogen levels were just so high from all of that pasturing over the past 60 years on this land yeah
0: but there were deer being pastured
1: yeah there were deer uh, <laughs> what, now, for
0: what reason for food
1: <laughs> kind of for ego this guy decided to raise deer to kind of invent a trophy deer that he could then have people come out to to stay here and then from here they would they would haul the deer out to an enclosed preserve and then kill the deer and then like mount it okay yeah <laughs>
0: No sense trying to understand that. (laughs) Yeah, not really. We checked out the high tunnel, the tool shed, and the site for their farm stand. Then we approached a fenced area attached to the main outbuilding.
3: This is where we keep our chickens. Right now we have 11 chickens, um, two roosters. There they are coming out. (laughs) They're all barred rock, except for Jean-Michel, who is our rooster, who we got from a woman in the area who didn't want uh, another rooster. Yeah, they love us, probably because we spend so much time with them because they lived in our house for way too long because we didn't have a setup outside. So they're so friendly, is what everyone tells me when they come out here. Yeah, I'd say my experience more than Nick's is limited with chickens. So I didn't know like what a friendly chicken was versus an unfriendly chicken. But apparently ours are the best. What can I say?
0: Okay, so they're black and white, kind of speckled, striped looking with a little bit of red comb on their faces.
1: If we have any issue with having chickens, it's that we don't have enough, <laughs> honestly. We have 11 more on the way. One of my goals for, for having birds is to to be able to rotationally graze them and, and work land while also being a, an endless source of joy and entertainment, <laughs> yeah. and they're great.
0: Along the side of the building were seed-starting trays.
1: A couple trays of native plants that I was able to source seed from. I really care about implementing native plants, and I realized that I hadn't been implementing that since between like March and May, so I decided to start some that have some edible properties to them, and it's, it's a whole different game to germinate a, a native seed or plant. Many of them require stratification, a, a period of set, cold, wet dormancy. Um, So that might mean storing them in sand in the fridge, a bit of water for a month or two months, depending on the seed. Some might require scarification, which is manually rubbing with sandpaper or disintegrating with sulfuric acid, the outer layer of a seed. You'd use that for bigger and heftier seeds with a casing like pawpaw or persimmon or Kentucky coffee tree and passiflora Uh, We do have a native passion flower that occurs along the Ohio River. So it's not quite been naturalized this far up north, but we are growing a handful of those, and we have some primrose, some pasture thistle, and some New Jersey tea, which we're excited about.
0: After the tour, we set up in the garage a good distance apart to talk about what drew me to their farm in the first place. It was a social media post about farming being political and how many farmers just don't want to go there.
1: A wonderful anecdote that came to my mind is the the farmer that I worked for in Northwest Indiana refused to get a windmill on his farm, although he was very interested in, in renewable energy because windmills have too much political context to them. There is this overlying fear, I think, throughout farmers or business owners where they don't want to split up their customer base. They don't want to speak about issues. I'm, I'm part of a few groups on Facebook for farming, farm owners and all that. And there is an alarming amount of people that will say, like, I don't care if you're white, black, brown or purple. You can start a farm. It just means growing seeds. And that's not true. Black and indigenous people are, are historically and systemically currently prevented from accessing land, and although to most it might not be as painstakingly obvious as their land being burned or like pillaged or reclaimed, it's now uh, a, a, a more subtle system of who who is helped and who isn't. in the early 20th century when farming blew up to a scale of of mass proportion loans were needed you had to have a loan to compete in that market loans were denied to black people or other people of color systemically and that hasn't gone away and most recently we see it in the covid farmer assistance program or package. A program that rolled out by the USDA in March or April of this year to provide some kind of financial relief for farmers that had to pivot that experienced losses in the market. You see it there too, that that was also systemically denied to young farmers, farmers of color, vulnerable and and, and underprivileged communities. It's such an unsustainable thing and any way you look at it, really. I mean, the average age of a farmer is steadily just rising up and up and up. And there's not help for young people that want to farm. There's, It's hard. It's really hard.
0: We talked about some of the difficulties in our community farmers markets, and I asked Nick and Marie where they were selling their produce. They mentioned an informal neighborhood setup and a market that started in early 2020 called the People's Cooperative Market.
1: The People's Market was just a, a godsend, really, for us. It, it took a bit for us to get, like, kind of registered with it, kind of, like, actually start vending because of COVID, because everything was so up in the air and frazzly. The People's Market is a, a wonderful organization that works hard to address racial injustice and in food systems in our community and they advertise to buy sponsored boxes for local community members pretty much like a csa share that is provided to people in need and they go about organizing it collecting it delivering it distributing it it's so much work we have the option of providing a a five dollar bundle a ten dollar bundle or a fifteen dollar box or a thirty dollar box those five and ten dollar bundles can then be combined when need be to create a fifteen dollar box or even a thirty dollar box and they sort all that out on our end it's as easy as we have ten bunches of ten dollar bundles and we put that in and they take care of the rest that's hugely important to small farmers to people that don't have a leg up already uh, to maybe two young people that just moved here. Like, that makes the difference, that inclusivity, that those values mean a lot to us.
0: I think some people might say, I'm just a farmer, I'm not an activist. Why does my food have to be political? Can't I just grow it and sell it? What is the connection between food and justice or food and racial justice because that's really been what's been stirring around in our community quite a bit
1: so who who can grow food and who can access food are the two key points in how food is political and how food is a matter of justice and why that matters i would imagine that as a white farmer Seeing an absence of farmers of color isn't a very pressing thing to you because that is what everyone knows it's not, you have to go out of your way and put yourself into someone else's shoes to notice that and notice that that is a problem. I think that as a farmer, asking yourself why you started growing food, most farmers might say to provide food to my community, I think that that needs to be reevaluated by many people and reconsidered uh because if if that was true and i'm not saying it's not then there is a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of things that need to be acknowledged for that to happen there are many 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 folks that can't access the farmers market that can't afford the price of food that is raised local locally and sustainably and i think i think that's where they're directly tied into that, and they can't really escape that.
0: We talked about the farmstead they're putting together on-site with a few other farmers, and what it can mean for our community to have multiple markets in locations all around town instead of just one central location. They also mentioned an idea for connecting with schools, starting first with a Montessori school in town.
1: Kind of forming a, a collective contract, kind of like, a, like an infant food hub to To make a contract that, instead of relying on one farmer, requires a collective of farmers to raise a produce to a specific standard and be able to obtain contracts like that. Uh-huh. Local food hasn't really made its way into schools around here. I don't think, I know Marie knows more about that.
3: I did some research on institutions purchasing local food in Indiana. And I mean the highest response rate was from schools specifically K through 12 schools in Indiana, but more specifically in Monroe County. And while schools might be purchasing 10% of their food locally and that might mean either that it was grown locally or that it was processed locally, there's still that 90% that's going elsewhere out of the state. And I think it's just interesting people's perceptions of Indiana as this agricultural state and yet 90 percent of our food comes from outside of the state. I do know
0: that IU has definitely made a bigger commitment to to purchasing local food and in my opinion that makes a huge difference because it's such a big institution and so if a farmer can count on selling a certain amount of butternut squash every fall, they can grow that amount and know that they're not taking that risk and you know it, it can really support local farming to have something that big.
3: To have a guarantee. You know, IU, they purchase millions of dollars of food every year, you know. 10% of that is so much money. Every 20% of that is so much money. And they have
0: the infrastructure to be able to make something like that actually work. I think the public schools, it's probably harder because it would be Mm -hmm. another job put on probably the same number of people (laughs) to figure out how to get these local contracts. We talked about issues of justice in food production and justice in food access and how those paths don't always meet, something we've addressed on this show recently. And I had another question for Nick about the farm's social media presence. When you posted things about, like, something that you're growing, it wasn't just, hey, look at our pepper crop or whatever. You were really, like offering some education about growing methods. There was something recently about irrigating the tomatoes and why it was beneficial. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your ideas about how you use social media in that way.
1: Yeah, that information is scarce. A lot of the information online might be curated towards home gardeners and not really like these semi-commercial market gardeners. And it's just been, it's been hard for me to, to find that information readily available and I'd like to provide it. That that scarcity of information has led to a lot of mistakes on our farm. And I would love for that to be an example that could help other people rather than something that we conceal. Because I've noticed that a lot of farms would like to highlight the best of the best of what's going on on their farm. And that is not our reality of that at all. And I think that that needs to, to be shared
0: you know, even just like how to cure gar- garlic or the importance of curing or what is curing garlic. Like it's another level of getting to know where your food comes from and getting to know you as a farmer, how your, what your practices are, what you're learning. Like, I just I, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's very generous to share the knowledge and it has this, these other functions as well yeah. and and builds a connection.
3: I was thinking about this when I was going through Goodwill and I saw maybe like a poster or something with a seashell and it said like, you never know how many friends you have until you have a beach house. And I honestly thought of that in terms of this farm, like I didn't know how many people wanted that connection to the land and to farm until we started this. And then all of my friends kind of came out of the the rafters and they were like, hey, if you need any help, like I'd love to help you. I really want to get my hands on which is really wonderful. And I think part of that is a lot of Nick's social media posts connecting people with us. And yeah, it's been really wonderful, the community support we've gotten. It just also seems like
0: it's another kind of demonstration of food is never just food. You know, yeah. it's all these other things.
1: Yeah, it, uh, it's been to, to, to communicate in a socially distanced world has been very cool for me because I am very introverted. I am, like, socially anxious all the time, severely. I don't have to think about the the tone of my voice. I have a lot of time to think about what exactly I'm saying, and that's been really cool for us.
0: Well, is there anything else you guys wanted to add or more you wanted to say about any of the topics that we kind of touched on and <laughs> jumped around?
1: Yeah, um, so... <laughs> I am 22 and Marie is just turning 21 and when we tried to start this project it the idea of it was kind of conceived in a different community up north was we did not get a good reception at all it was like almost entirely people saying you're not ready to farm don't farm.
3: What's your fallback?
1: What's your fallback? Get someone to invest in you. and that was really negative and a complete hindrance. And it, we didn't really let it stop us, but it would have been nice to have a, a more accepting and, and encouraging environment than that. And that's something that I would love to help curate in that. And so I'd like to say, if anyone has any questions about how we were able to do any of this, please reach out. It would make my day.
0: I've been speaking with Nick Garza and Marie O'Neill of Outlier Farmstead in Bloomington, Indiana. Find ways to connect at eartheats.org. After a quick break, we have a story about a musician with a passion for vegan cooking. Stay with us. Kate Young here, this is Earth Eats. Our next story comes to us from producer Toby Foster.
4: I have to say that I learned from people that taught me with luck, and I appreciate that. So I just try to do the same.
5: Danny Debuto is a founding member of Zeta, a collective art piece that started in Venezuela in 2003 and whose members currently reside in South Florida. Zeta is primarily known for their musical aspect, which you can hear playing in the background now. As a band, they combine hardcore punk with polyrhythmic Afro-Caribbean percussion and elements of 70s-era psychedelia, but they also express themselves through film, design, and even food. The first time I saw them, I immediately knew they were doing something new and exciting and was struck by the intensity of the music, their stage presence, and the fact that they had cooked enough vegan mac and cheese for the 300 people in attendance. Um,
4: Well, I'm Danny. I play in the band Colceta. And I'm a a vegan cooker, vegan lover, a vegan food creator, originally from Venezuela. And we've been, like, living in the United States the last four to five years or so.
5: I asked Danny a little bit about the group's evolution and about how food and veganism became so important to them. The band spent a lot of time traveling and was introduced to a DIY culture that changed the way they thought about their art and their lifestyles. You know, it was the music, the thing that got us, like, moving
4: and always, like, taking us out of our comfort zone and going to all these different countries where we found, like, all these, like, movements and voices um, moving forward through different ways of
5: what we already, like, being taught. In their travels, Zeta was inspired by bands in places like Mexico and Argentina who were making their own merch and adopting a vegan plant-based diet.
4: Knowing about the the way to feed yourself without using any animal
5: in it, you know, like, like, wow, mind-blowing. Before the pandemic, the band spent most of their time on tour, and Danny took it upon himself to keep the band well-fed. Sometimes the band will play six or seven shows a week for months at a time. So they rely on cooking and eating well to stay healthy and energetic. You can try to like get yourself feeding the right things
4: to be like full of energy. Very like, you know, like wake up and like pff, up for going on six hours on a band and get to a show, do load in, load out, be able to play. And you know, like it, it, that needs a lot of your energy and also the fact of stop at a rest area our big parking lot any like whatever park that you find on the way that oh that this is cute and we have already our stuff there so we stop and we kind of like relax and bond and you know like whatever walk a little bit we prep something there we you know like the just the the moment of like making community with your friends
5: Even the band members who might not have shared Danny's initial enthusiasm for cooking on the road are on board now, and Danny is happy to accommodate their special requests. Danny says that sometimes, when the band needs extra energy or clarity, say, before a recording session, they'll ask him to prepare only raw foods for the day. And then I'm like, I got you. (laughs) 100%. Because they know, they feel it already. Danny also regularly feeds the crowds that come to their shows. Even on tour, he can usually find someone willing to lend him their kitchen for the afternoon. If not, he'll make something that doesn't require cooking. He told me that he does this both to try to expose people to plant-based cooking, and also to create an inviting and inclusive atmosphere at the shows.
4: I have to say that I learned from people that taught me with love. And I appreciate that, so I just try to do the same. Show with example. I think that's that's, that's the, the a good way to get into like um old like the plant based deal and how to like fit yourself and going through that path and exploring there, you will see like wow, there's like so many things that you can learn about
5: food. Since the pandemic has put a stop to any live shows, Danny decided about six months ago to start teaching online cooking classes over Zoom. Each month, Danny makes a menu of four courses and the class meets once a week and cooks one item from the menu. If you, like me, love scrolling through pictures of delicious looking food, you can follow his Instagram account at plant-based cooking with Danny. Recent menu items include Venezuelan pan de jamón, vegan shawarma, a tofu banh mi sandwich, and coconut ceviche served in a hollowed out pineapple. So when shells disappear, we were like, you know, like that meme
4: of John Trouble to like watching like one side and the other, like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what we're supposed to do now, you know? So yeah, we started like kind of like reinventing ourselves in music and, you know, in different activities and And all my friends, they were like, Danny, you have to do something with food. So so I was like, well, like, what about, like, making some, like, vegan cooking lessons online via Zoom? And find a way to let the people know in advance what they need so it's not like just me cooking and you just like watching there and being at the end of the problem like oh my god that looks so good I'm so hungry right now and you go to your (laughs) kitchen and you have like whatever bread, beans, you know? So I was like what about like make a class where the people have the ingredients already so they cook at the same time and at the end when I show what we
5: make they have the same thing at their end. A friend helped Danny get organized and come up with a menu. He posted about it on Instagram, and it wasn't long before people started signing up. I had to open another
4: one and another one and, and having like different times, schedules, and I started my classes, you know, and, and uh, where I I, I I wrote this menu, like like um, month menu of four plates that we make one, one per week. One day, it's like a two-time, two-hour, three-hour session of cooking mm-hmm. and hanging and talking and explaining what we're doing, that how, and all the facts that comes within, and. Um, has been amazing, you know, I, I use like a couple cameras, so I have another friend that is also connect on the Zoom meeting, and he controls the camera because I have one camera for me to talk and another camera that is like on a Zoom where I'm like cutting and like, you know, like working the stuff with my hands, and that's it.
5: We also talked about how much we miss sharing food with friends and how the classes have been helping to fill that void.
4: Picture that some people has been like, yo, I mean, this is the, my time a week where I met with more people, you know, I feel like I'm like hanging with a group of people and at the end, you know, like we're sharing like all this knowledge and then I got to eat a lot. So yeah, honestly, <laughs> with the whole situation that we're going through, I think it has been like very like useful for me and for the people like um, getting involved.
5: I asked Danny if he wants to continue to do the classes after the pandemic is over, and maybe even start doing them on the road in person. 100%. Honestly, it's a project that it's a baby,
4: and it's like learning and forming itself with the, pra- the actual practice of it, you know, we're doing it weekly and all of that. So when that time of playing live and touring again comes back, I'm sure, the evolution will come within. You know, like how to like keep doing the classes, like the places, the way we booked the tour, being able to make the classes while while on tour. But yeah, for sure, that will be a
5: fire content. My guest today was Danny Debuto. You can find out more about Zeta at joinzeta.com. If you want to see pictures of Danny's food and maybe even sign up for a class yourself, Check him out on Instagram, at plantbasedcookingwithdanny. That's Danny spelled D-A-N-I. Thank you for reaching out. You know,
4: I'm very, like, grateful to communicate and, you know, like, help or whatever. Add whatever positive into the conversation.
5: I'll leave you with a bit more of their music.
0: That story comes to us from producer Toby Foster. Find out more about Zeta and Danny's cooking classes on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Get the freshest food news each week. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly note packed with food stories and recipes right in your inbox. Go to EarthEats.org to sign up. The EarthEats team includes Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Peyton Kenobluck, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson. Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Nick Garza,
2: Marie O'Neill,
0: and Danny DeButo.
2: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.